I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Ralph Breaks the Internet and Frozen 2. Wake up! Ralph, what is wrong with you? Start churning butter and put on your church shoes, little sister, because we're about to blast off! Ralph, what is it you're trying to say? We're going on the internet. What? Look at all this stuff. This is the most beautiful miracle I've ever seen. Welcome to the search bar. What can I help you find today? Um, Umbrella, umbrage, umami. No. Noah's art, no doubt. Nordstrom rack. Ergonomics, urban outfitters, urco. I'm pretty sure he's just trying to guess what you're gonna say. My autofill is a touch aggressive today. Let me try. Take me to a website that's super intense and really nuts. <gasps> Hi. <gasps> whoa, whoa, ladies, I'm a princess too. What kind of a princess are you? Uh, Do you have magic hair? No. Magic hands? No. Do animals talk to you? No. Were you poisoned? No. Cursed? No. Kidnapped or enslaved? No. Are you guys okay? Should I call the police? Do people assume all your problems got solved because a big strong man showed up? Yes! What is up with that? She, she is, is a princess! princess. <laughs> Ralph breaks the internet. Shouldn't it be Ralph wrecks the internet? Yes, yeah, since he is Wreck-It Ralph. Uh, yeah, but break the internet, it's like a thing. Right, it's just wreck the internet kind of sounds better, doesn't it? Mm, you're not wrong. Our Disney series continues with two films that disappointed me the first time around. Uh, I wanted to wait until Disney made something that I considered to be really great before we talked about them again, so as not to end on a sour note. And I don't like being sour at the best of times. Like, it's just, that's not what we do on this show. Like, even if we don't like something, sourness just feels wrong. Thankfully, Raya and the Last Dragon is that great film, and we will be back talking about that one next week. And Daniel Floyd will be rejoining us for that one. With us for these two, however, where we will talk about why the films bothered us, but also try to be, not to be too ranty, we have longtime friend of the show, Hollywood actress Maya Santandrea, who pretty much secured a guest spot on this episode on the day we saw Ralph 2. And I was like, so, uh, I think you said, like, I have thoughts. And I was like, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then we went back <laughs> and forth, and I was like, oh, yeah, you're definitely coming That is verbatim coming what I said. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we might, in fact, get ranty about a few things in that one. Maybe lots of things in that one. But it's for a good reason. Uh, probably a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, hello, everyone. Thanks for having me back. Hello. Also, to compound our frustrations, as we noted in some of the later Disney shows with Daniel Floyd, who, by the way, skipped this episode as he was lukewarm on Ralph 2 and hasn't even yet seen Frozen 2, which tells you how much he's heard about it that's positive enough in terms of, oh, dude, you got to see this thing. The thing we found at the time, though, is that unlike in the 2000s when Disney were releasing amazing diamond and platinum edition double DVD editions of their movies packed with absolutely beautifully curated archival materials, sometimes triple disc. Tarzan was a triple. The making of bonus features and all of that, just all of the how it came together to give us a very vivid understanding of how the masterpieces and even just the good Disney animated canon of yore got made. They don't do that much anymore. I mean, as soon as they started putting them out on Blu-ray, they were like, you can have a trailer. Um, here's a little music video. A fun kids game. 
And uh, here's a fun little uh, promotional spot. I didn't even know about this until uh, I think Paul Shotton mentioned there are extras on Disney Plus. If you if you go to like the, there's a, like a left tab, and a lot of folks might not know this yet. Some films have got like making of stuff on them. These two, almost nothing. And I know because it's been mentioned on YouTube that Frozen Two definitely has some deleted scenes or at least storyboards and explanations as to what they are on that Blu-ray. We don't have that Blu-ray, mm-hmm. but I've taken on board you know some some of what was said about that. So I've got a bit more of an idea of what was going on there. I do know Disney do not like putting out extras that aren't universally positive. That's the thing. Like this made me think of the Emperor's New Groove uh, that we talked about with Dan ages ago. Um, without the Sweatbox, which is that unofficial documentary made by Sting's wife that Disney didn't want seeing the light of day, and yet somehow managed to get leaked on the internet. But that told us how Kingdom of the Sun didn't get made. But even then, we ended up with the Emperor's New Groove, which is rad. And in this case, we ended up with these two movies. So when you get weird, puzzling, troubled, contradictory stories like this, and it feels like we definitely need to know more about them, it's it's frustrating to have to sort of delve in with supposition. Like, you know, we have to assume far too much. And we like good faith argument. It's tough to criticise Disney without ending up in that crowd who seem to just want to tear Disney down. It's probably best described as Chris Rock once said about America. America does good things. America does bad things. America does schizophrenic things. Especially, like, it does harm. (laughs) And it does, like, you know, there is positive about it. And Disney is America, because Walt Disney was the capitalist. And these days, in particular, everything that gets made by the Disney studio is such a team effort that it is difficult to comb out who might have been responsible for um, this element, who might have been responsible for that element, even breaking it down to something as simple as, well, the script was good, but the performances weren't great and I have issues with the animation, doesn't really give you a full picture. Yeah. As Dan would tell me next week, there is, in fact, a large chunk of Frozen 2 documentary material on Disney+, Plus, not attached to the extras on Frozen 2. It's its whole thing called Into the Unknown, Making Frozen 2. And I didn't see that because I thought it was just the music video for Into the Unknown because the word making was so tiny. So, yeah, hours and hours of extra material while they were making the film. So, yeah, we have these two iffy films to talk about. And side note, if you like or even love Ralph Breaks the Internet and Frozen 2, that is cool, as per usual. We are just going to do what we did with the other 56 titles that we have covered so far since 2014. (laughs) 56! Unlike most of them, because we're now in the apocalyptic future... Uh, This particular Disney show I can foresee is not going to be child-friendly. So if you found us on Oh My Disney, you'd better go ask a parent or guardian for permission to listen first. And a special note to you you parents and guardians, you need to say yes, because your sprog needs some knowledge dropped on them, even if it's rude or gay. So, especially if it's rude. <laughs> especially if it, yeah, I was about to say. Sometimes stuff that's not kid friendly is actually what they need. And that is a horrible and weird thing to say just yeah. in itself. Hey, you know what, mom and dad? Sometimes you just got to ignore that tipper sticker and let them listen to Satan anyway. <laughs> Hail Satan. So, let's give each of these a brief synopsis first in case folks haven't seen them. So, Ralph wrecks the internet. Uh, stop. 
So I, I, I didn't even do that. I didn't even do that to make a point. I completely... Oh, that was just so That complete. was not... I, I suddenly thought, oh my God, he's done that on purpose. We saw the, um, oh, the pitch meeting uh, from... Um, yes, that was the trailer, right? And like they just had that scene for the trailer because I remember that and I was like, that's not actually in the movie. Yeah. Um, where they actually like lampshade it a little bit and they're like, yeah, we know it should be Ralph wrecks the internet, but it doesn't work. So we're going to call it breaking the internet. Expect to see more of those in the future. It's effectively a hold your tweets. We know. The most obvious thing you can say is something we know. Well, if it's that obvious, call it Ralph Wrecks the Internet. Ralph Breaks the Internet, which is what it's actually called, relates to Kim, Kardashian. Kim Kardashian's ass it was a, that it was, was so awesome then, it broke the internet. But that was the thing that started everybody, apparently, that was the thing that started everybody using the yeah, term. In, in like break. 2018, mm. we're so past that now. No one says breaks the internet, possibly because Ralph breaks the internet happened and everyone was like, well, that's not cool anymore. <laughs> so it's called Ralph breaks the internet and the synopsis runs thus. Ralph and Vanellope go to the internet. Vanellope quits Sugar Rush because she's bored and starts playing Slaughter Race. Ralph has trouble letting go, but he gets there in the end. Okay, so... <clears throat> that's it. That's the film. That is literally I mean, the film. There's yeah, a bunch I, of other yeah, incidents in that kind of get in the way, but that is the film. Uh, yes, in terms of the plot, that's pretty much it. And it may sound like it's a very... You know, like, oh, come on. That's like saying the Titanic is about a boat that sinks or whatever. But, but it, no, no, uh, 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 that's, uh, uh, that's essentially what happens. No, 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 no. If I just said Ralph and Vanellope go to the internet and Vanellope stays behind, that would be these are the character movements, which is the boat goes halfway and sinks. Titanic isn't about a boat that sinks. They use the framing of the Titanic sinking to illustrate a woman who is trapped freeing herself with the help of a guy who genuinely loves her within a structurally tiered society that illustrates the appalling privilege of those in the white upper floors of the Titanic and the appalling disadvantages of those in the below decks black section of the Titanic. Yes, that's I, If you I, want to reduce I, Titanic yes. to just its component parts, that's how you do that shit. Yeah, I, I was simply, that was the, the best. Oh no, that wasn't me. That wasn't with, me to you. Like, that was me to... Like, those fucking Hobbit movies were born boring as hell. All it was was a bunch of people walking. Three movies of people walking to a fucking volcano. Yeah, it sounds it sounds extremely reductive, but I mean, not a whole lot else mm. actually happens yeah, in no, terms but, of the plot. Yeah, uh, the, the actual meat of this film is Ralph has trouble letting go, but he gets there in the end. Th mm -hmm. That's it. <laughs> it's, it's that is actually the best bit of the film. It takes place mostly right near the end and everything else is just messing around until that point only it's messing around in in ways that uh, I, I know for sure that me and Maya consider to be quite harmful so at the very beginning uh, Ralph and Vanellope are just hanging out which is their day-to-day -day, as we established at the end of Wreck-It Ralph I recall we actually covered Ralph 1 days before Ralph 2 came out because I didn't want oh, to go into talking yeah. about Ralph 1 gotcha. with any knowledge of what really happens in Ralph 2 I'd already seen the mm. trailer and I was like well this does not look great it turns out that it was not great. The best thing about this movie was that we were sat behind a bunch of sneering teenage boys shitting on the ending so hard that our child started crying. So I took them down to the box office afterwards and said, yeah, we had horrible shitty boys who ruined the movie at the very end and there was really nothing that anyone could do about it. And they were like, oh, I am so, so sorry. Here, have some free tickets. 
And with those, we went to see Into the Spider-Verse. Great success. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Much better choice. Ralph tries to improve Vanellope's Sugar Rush game because she's already expressing she's getting bored of it and Ralph's getting worried that she's going to move on in some capacity. He starts her a new track, which ends up inadvertently breaking her game because the girl, like, playing it, drags the wheel to the side and it ends up breaking off. This tiny girl playing a candy game is like the Incredible Hulk. And then there's this weird gag where Mr. Lipwack the arcade owner, comes along and goes, oh, the, the, the people who made this game went out of business years ago. I don't think I'll be able to find another steering wheel anywhere. And all the kids bring out their phones and go, dit, 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 found one. Now, the problem is with the movie, the whole premise seems to be about them getting into the internet so that they can get this one steering wheel that's on eBay for 200 bucks ordered so it can be sent to the arcade so that Sugar Rush can return to business as usual rather than being broken down and sold for parts because it's not earning any money, which would effectively maroon Vanellope in, you know, nowhere land and and should be stuck Mm -hmm. in Grand Central Video Game Station. The problem is the kids found it immediately, which actually suggests it's really easy to find this thing that you've just said is really difficult to find. I think the only stipulation they add to that to make it a little bit more rare is only one person is selling it. Like one person has it. Person is selling it today. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know. Like it it's this this is one of these movies though, like if you if you think too much about the logic, it's just gonna send you down a rabbit hole. So let's do just, that. <laughs> yeah, it's just gonna completely fall apart. Um if I could just I could say something positive uh, about the movie just before I get into all the the utter BS. Is it the um, Zangief waxing his chest hair thing? Because that was neat. I like that. Oh, that was pretty funny. But also, I just wanted to say in terms of uh, on a technical level, a lot of the animation still looks pretty good. Oh, like, yeah. I especially really like the uh, design aesthetic for the Sugar Rush game. Like, all of the textures look really nice. The colors pop. It, it does have kind of its own very unique look compared mm. to the rest of the movie when we get into like yeah. the internet you side of things. You have just successfully complimented the original Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, that's that's a positive thing I could say. In this movie, there is still that little bit that's like, oh, the animation looks really nice mm-hmm. here. So there you go. Is that it? That's it. There's one other point that we'll, we'll get to that actually genuinely made me laugh, but that comes a little bit later, okay, so I'll cool. save it for right. when we get to it. I have an overarching point about the whole of this. Wait till the end. Or wait till it feels like it really needs... Or do you think it will actually inform it? it I now? think it will inform the way... I personally talk about all the bits okay. and pieces. That's mm-hmm. that's why I think Floor it's sensible yours. to say it now. It suffers from something which fro- I will also bring in on Frozen 2 because it does the same thing, which is that Disney are at a point here where they don't have familiarity with the audience they're trying to sell to. Mm-hmm. They And it's, it's most prominent in Ralph Breaks the Internet, but it does turn up in Frozen 2 as well. But they are using tools, techniques and elements that they think will appeal to this generation's audience, mm. but they don't know how to use them. And it basically means that the whole thing feels like Rocky staring at the sky when Adonis says it's in the cloud. The cloud. Even the use of Daft Punk with Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger, while it might seem like they're the voice of the internet, that is a reference to a 13-year-old meme, or more specifically, funny, quirky video, called Daft Hands. Ask your parents about it. And while you're there, ask about Chocolate Rain, Leave Britney Spears Alone, and Star Wars Kid. 
I am amazed mm. there was no dabbing in this film. There yeah. may actually have been dabbing. Yeah, there was there was flossing though, so they got their little ah. fort, Fortnite reference. There you go. Yeah, um, it's the, like they know the words, they know the terms, they know the the um, the imagery, but they don't have a fucking clue what any of it actually means. Yeah, I, I think yes. Did flossing ever mean anything? That's a that's a very good point. I think that's um, yeah, that definitely comes up very prominently in Ralph too, mm. and it, it's very it's a very specific audience that they're aiming at, which is strange for. Disney, you think of being very all-encompassing. It could be enjoyed by anybody. This seems to be going for a really, really narrow, specific thing. Ryan George made a, a con connection between uh, this and the Emoji Movie. Now, obviously, this was being made before the Emoji Movie, but when the Emoji Movie came out, it should have been a fucking wake-up call, a Black Friday moment for them. Do they call them Black Friday moments, where they basically shut the production down and say, we've got to change this thing around? Like, oh, my God, our movie is not much better than this. Mm. And just in terms of what we're saying and what we're doing with it, it's still it's still better than the Emoji movie. It definitely has a lot more heart. It's not that comedians or comedy that tries too hard. It's just that it's being weirdly persistent with the same gag. It's when they if that get, makes sense. It's when they get hung up on the trappings of what is current, and it's the same hole that they fell down with Chicken Little after yeah. the 90s renaissance. Yeah, this yes. is still way yeah. better than Chicken Little, but there mm. are, again, but That's the echoes. room they're in danger of falling mm -hmm. down. And honestly, if you start to see, if you look at Disney for long enough like we have, there is a cyclical element to how they produce things. Mm. They do really well for a chunk of time, and then they get very fixated on something new. This is why yeah. I wanted to wait till Raya so, so that we wouldn't like be in the middle of this. Where are we going here? Yeah. You can even look at like in, in the 70s when they were doing a lot of, uh, they were recycling a lot of their animation. They were trying to get things out very quick and you could definitely see like a drop in quality in the animation because companies like Hanna-Barbera were kind of doing the same thing at that time. Yeah. Okay, so um, they get to the internet because Mr. Lipwack, who's like whiffy... Oh, no, how that's the, uh, the... Okay, there's a guy at the beginning who's like, the internet, this is a bad thing, and he, like, tapes off the Ethernet port access and says, you know, you, you need to be afraid of the internet. And I'm like, are you suggesting that is anyone who criticizes what we're about to see of the internet? Because the moment they actually get there, I'm like, nope, nope, that it, nope. <clears throat> In the same way that, for the longest time, it appeared that Nintendo thought the internet was a monster made of dicks. And so they shielded all of their users, adults and children alike, in a way that left them with a frustrating online interface. But this takes that sanitization to all new levels. To the point where they inadvertently start giving kids the wrong messages. Do you want to start up on the whole depiction of what the internet actually is, as symbolized by this movie that takes place for 90% of its runtime in the internet? Yeah, it's it's a lot of the movie. It's almost the entire thing. Like we have pretty much abandoned the arcade and you know, like it's in there for the first five minutes or yeah. so of the film and then they just go straight into it. Them being um, video which... game characters is is mostly incidental. It's mostly, yeah, it mostly comes to nothing. Um, uh, Fix It Felix and his lady interest Calhoun, you know, from the shoot 'em up game, they are basically name dropped at the very beginning, at the very end of the film, yeah. and they are never checked in on. We never get to see 
any of them ever again. It's just like they bookend the film. We've completely forgotten about them. We've completely forgotten about all the rest of the residents of Candy Crush who are also in, you know, in danger of losing their homes by the machine being unplugged and everything mm. else. And, uh, and they're effectively the, refugees and they, they weirdly they make are, gags yes. about that. Yeah, they like the people have to be adopted or, or you know, brought into new homes or, or rehomed, you know, whatever. But then, like, the aesthetic shifts from, you know, where you had in the first Wreck-It Ralph movie where everything felt like it was designed in a very specific way. Like, a lot of the 8-bit the characters were uh, animated and designed to look a certain way, and there seemed to be this... Um, almost reverence for the different time periods and the different um, design elements of the different games. When you get into the internet, everything looks super polished and monochromatic and like samey. Like it's, I don't even know if this is a word, but corporatized. It looks like, like a giant space age shopping mall. Mm. And yeah, all pretty of the, much. Everybody's and, little avatars is all just ad, slight variations on the same model. Mm. Like the way yeah, that Microsoft like the, have, um, and the Mies. Mm. Yeah, the the yeah the little me guys. That's exactly what I was thinking mm. too. They kind of have that same little design to them, where they kind of have the little blockheads with the little stick bodies. It looks mm. very like very much like a me. And when when I got to this part, watching it again, it just it felt visually exhausting hmm. almost yeah. because of how uh, how flat everything looked like there was it just felt like there was no life in it at all even you know alan tudyk um you know voicing the little um ask me anything guy like even he couldn't bring it out mm. of that sense for me vaccines cause autism well i have one million results to say they don't and one result that says they do i knew it just because I have it doesn't mean it's true! I found 130 results for where does my high school girlfriend live now. Yikes. You're welcome. Boy, that sounds like a bad deal. Uh, who's in charge down there? And the guy's like, oh, I think that was Eckhart, sir. Oh, my God. <laughs> I see why you're complimenting Sugar Rush now as, as a contrast against this. Yeah, this, yes, this exactly. Is... Because because then when it moves into the Internet, it's just everything just looks completely the same. There's nothing to, like, distinguish one thing from the other until you really get into, like, Slaughter Race has a very specific look. Um, the, the guy who's... You know, in the like the 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 dark web area, that kind of has a, a specific look. But those are very small segments of the movie mm. compared to the rest of it. Like most of it is taking place in like the eBay land, the um the BuzzTube land, the Disney section. You know, all of that stuff, and it all is like there. It's yeah. It's I can't. I can't really think of a better way to say it other than visually exhausting. Mm, I, I agree. And it's it, this is something that I tend to struggle with quite a lot when you've got a mass of a confused thing that all looks very similar. And the, uh -huh. the thing you're trying to portray is, look at all this stuff you have to choose from, but here's the problem. I don't know what to look at. And the yes. effort of deciding and, and, and consciously having to single out things to look at is the bit that's tiring. Mm. Yeah. And also, I, I, this made me think a little bit of Ready Player One, where it's like, oh, yeah. oh, hey, did you see that? Did you see that? Did you see that thing? But it's like the corporate version of that, which to me was like, it, I got such a cynical so Ready Player One feeling. Yeah, <laughs> like such a cynical, but not even of like, 
a product or a character or a franchise, but like just, just marketing things, just logos, mm. just you like um, what we tell you to like. Well, when we started doing this series back in early 2014, a movie came out called The Lego Movie that tacitly mm. endorses the remix culture and actually suggests that, you know, just constantly turning this, this, this product into a very specific copyright-locked, glued-together thing that cannot be fluid anymore um, is, in fact, bad. And mm. the, the Lego movie is like a fantastic version. I, I compared it back when we did Ready Player One. A fantastic version of Ready Player One and a fantastic version of this. That also um, uh, underlines the fact that I hadn't even written this in the notes. But Ralph, specifically, maybe not so much Vanellope, but Ralph is not the character to be in the internet like this. He's too blunt. If there's going to be, like, his whole, oh, it's the e-boy, that, that whole thing. Like, you know, the, he's not even a parent. He's like a grandpa. He's a yeah. <laughs> uh, like you know, the the parents of kids right now are late Gen Xers, early millennials, and kids who are about Vanellope's age, maybe mid millennials tops. But the millennials who grew up with the internet, they know what the fuck they're doing with the internet. This is what happens if grandpa has been you know raising you for the past year or so because. Your parents were killed by the Candy King? Question mark. <laughs> but the, I mean, as as part of my notes on this, I had to look up the difference between pastiche and parody. Mm. And ultimately, what it comes down to is that what culture is now is eclectic pastiche. That is what there is, and part of the reason for that explain is, what pastiche. Okay, is. so past so pastiche and parody are both effectively imitations of an existing piece of media, piece of art, um, theme, genre, etc. Okay. The the particular difference between the two is that parody is usually done in order to mock or satirise. They're called parodies. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, and pastiche is usually done as a celebration because it's something that you, you really connect with, you really enjoy, and you're making your version of it. The difference between scream, pastiche, mm -hmm. and scary movie, parody, parody of a pastiche. But done very poorly, yeah. See also how Deadpool should have ended. Have fun being more funny and more meta than Deadpool. Satirical parody is best placed when laid upon something very self-serious. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Um, but, but yeah, so the, the eclectic pastiche is when you're taking all sorts of different things that you've enjoyed and mixing them together into your own uh, new creation, but in such a way that the influences that they come from are clear. You're not trying to hide them. You're not melding them into something so completely recooked that that it's not very obvious there's what no plagiarism on. going on you are but signaling that exactly. as to yeah. what you're you, doing you want people to know what you've been drawing on Bingo. so but one of the reasons so for why... example in endgame when uh, iron well when tony says are you basing our entire plan for the future on back to the future yes that's mm -hmm. the one so um, but one of the reasons why this is pretty much what there is out there these days is because back in the day, you know, this this mystery past when people think that original stuff got made, mm -hmm. that <laughs> never really existed. People have been remixing things since before the ancient Greeks. Lego movie. However, now 
all of those influences are very, very widely known and appreciated by everybody. So you put something out that's a combination of all of your influences and the percentage of your audience who are going to miss some of the references and think that it's original and and completely out of the the foundation of your brain is a smaller portion of the audience and it gets smaller and smaller every year. So uh, I actually, um, we were pretty much watching it at the same time the other day and uh, you said, where are the Nazis? (laughs) And it was like... (laughs) Not, I mean... Shoot, I'm not. I don't want people to think like I'm asking for Nazis. Oh, my goodness! No. Of course not. But I mean, this is an extremely sanitized version of the internet. My oh, God! Oh my God! Yes. It was like Hello Kitty Island Adventure. Mm-hmm. And it's not just sanitized in terms of the people who are there as well. It's sanitized in terms of what elements of the internet are and how they're presented. Um, one significant example of this is the first way to make money on the internet. Oh my God. um, That's recommended to them. Okay, we're effectively talking about gold farming here, Mm. which there are people who are obliged Mm. to do that because it's the only way that they can make a a living and survive. And it's being presented here as the modern equivalent of a fucking lemonade stand. Yeah. (sighs) There are reasons why I think Maya got really angry and, and so yes. almost Extreme. certainly okay, the so reasons that I did. Do, do you just want to go for this? Because yes, I don't want to steal any of your thunder on this one. I, I've, I've got I actually, stuff. I, okay, so I wrote this down. I may be talking for like a, a minute-ish, if you'll allow me that, oh, because I wanted it. to make sure that I You had can talk my, for 25 my... more minutes if you want. No, what I we can't. Got. You know that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... I and I will just you know just to kind of set this up when I saw this when it got to this section where they're like hey make money sell, you know uh, just playing video games on the internet when it got to this section we yes. need to explain why they need money and for that I need to ah. briefly explain why eBay doesn't work like that yes please okay so they go to eBay because they hear this thing is selling on eBay for 200 bucks they just happen to land there within seconds of it actually finishing it's an auction to which I'm like dude auctions (laughs) I can see why they did it for the film to illustrate what an auction site is for kids but they then proceed to get pretty much every other fact wrong. Yes, eBay does have auctions, but I, I I keep seeing like, this DVD is ending in nine days time. It's currently two pounds and 14 pence. I'm like, why are you bothering? What is the point? Just put it on for the, uh, the, the average price that they go for and buy it now. Effectively, eBay, like since the 2000s, has been pushing itself towards being more like Amazon, while Amazon has been pushing itself to be more like eBay. They've been homogenizing both their competing companies. This is why no matter which marketplace you go to, you search for one thing, you find multiple listings for the same thing. Most things on eBay have a buy it now. But if it's a rare thing, like this steering wheel, that actually does make an internal sense. But it's at 200 bucks and no one's bidding. The way rare items work is everyone sits there with their arms folded. They like they time it, they give themselves reminders if they want this rare item. But everyone basically just waits till the last minute 
and then they make their bids all at the same time. Within the the, the, the last minute or two of a, an item on an auction are the only times it'll really see major activity. So they're there, and there's one other guy there. If I come along and there's zero bidders, and I say $200, my hand being up means I'm paying 200 bucks for that steering wheel. First bid. Sharon comes along and goes... $205, it goes to her. Second bid. If I didn't bid $200, but in fact bid 250 Sharon doesn't get it for 205 but I have to pay at least 205 because that's her highest bid. If Sharon's put her bid on for 245 I would have to pay 245 but she would still lose it. If Sharon bid 260 then she gets the item, and she has to go past my hidden highest amount. What they do in this film is, he says $1,000, Ralph says, to this $200 thing, which basically goes straight past the only other person bidding. At which point, Ralph and Vanellope have won. They've got it. The other guy could go 205, 210, 220, 230, 240, and it would just keep slowly climbing up, but he would never get to 1,000 before it ran out. Then Vanellope says 1500 But the thing was, it's already jumped up to a grand. That's not how it works. It doesn't jump up to a grand. It just goes 205 And to suggest that, in fact, there are other people bidding that they can't see that are pushing their maximum, pushing them to their maximum bids immediately, suggests that at some point somebody's willing to pay 25 Six and a half no, thousand. No, it's this. not that because as soon as Vanellope bids fifteen hundred, it should go to one thousand and five dollars or one thousand and one, but it jumps straight mm-hmm. to fifteen hundred. Mm. So then they get all of this shit of okay, you have to pay us within twenty four hours. That's bollocks. Also, none of them have eBay accounts. How is this even fucking well, happening? Yeah, exactly. They're in yeah. eBay shouting numbers. <laughs> that's not how it. That's not yeah, how like, anything works. Yeah, they don't have a profile. They don't have any sort of, like, they're not on the grid. They're just digital characters in a game. They themselves, Vanellope and Ralph, are a series of ones and zeros. How are they able to do this? It's also worth noting, not even live, in real life, in-person auctions. Allow you to blunder in and scream numbers. You can't run into Christie's, shout three million (laughs) dollars, and walk out with a Van Gogh painting. Well, they don't walk out with it. They get told by what appears to be disgusts mum, you need to pay us. What it works it ends up at what is it? How much is 27, it? $27,001. Right. $1. Okay. Here's how you do it. You don't fucking pay that much. And then you send a, a message to the person who's because it is a person who's selling the steering wheel. Really sorry, didn't mean to say 30 grand. That's a crazy amount of money to spend for on a piece of plastic. Like, if you're in violation of, t- of eBay services, you just go, I'm so sorry. And eBay might cancel the account you don't have. Or yeah. it's such a ridiculous scenario that they need to get this much money. And unfortunately, it means that Ralph has to do quite a lot of stuff that Maya's about to shout even louder than me to get that ridiculous amount of money, which they didn't need to have it that high. There are instances where things on eBay and indeed on Amazon sell for so far over the odds that it is ridiculous. Yeah. That's money laundering. Yeah. 
That's so that they have a legitimate reason to transfer £50,000 to someone. You know, if you win a large amount of money at Vegas, someone comes over to you and starts talking to you about getting a room. And they're basically mm-hmm. casing you out to, making sure you're, to make sure you're not counting cards. If you put a 30 grand thing on a 200 bucks steering wheel, that's weird activity. Yes. And eBay are going to be talking to Ralph, who doesn't exist, yeah. about yeah. this money he doesn't have. Yeah. To pay on the account he doesn't have, via PayPal that he doesn't have, using a credit card he doesn't have. They'd have to put lip wax details in to get it sent to the and basi- Basically, the problem is, if they actually followed how you actually have to do it, they're instructing kids on how to get a credit card and buy something on eBay. Mm-hmm. Don't want to do that. <laughs> Which means you're already fucking failing. Like, they just walk into uh, eBay and go, boy, it was a lot harder than I thought to become a member of eBay <laughs> to get all that stuff. But we managed to anyway, not till you're 18, kids. But yeah, they are now stuck, having to find the money for the steering wheel, (sighs) which leads them to click on a pop-up ad. And as we find out in the movie, clicking on pop-up ads is a really good idea. You find your saviors. You find all kinds of opportunities by clicking on that spam, on that pop-up ads. Just, just, Mm. just, just... Press any dodgy shit you want and go to the deep web. That's where you're going to find all the golds. Yeah. That's where they're hiding the Nazis. Right. Maya, (laughs) now that we have the tensions of this film sorted out, and mine kind of broadcast, Mm. by all means, go nuts. Okay. So here's what ends up happening is essentially what Ralph and Vanellope are presented with is basically loot hunting, which is a thing that some people actually do. They'll go into games like um, like Fortnite, like League mm. of Legends, and you know games like this, and they will actually look for very high ticket items that they will sell at exorbitant prices to people who are willing to pay for them. So now they decide to go for it, and they decide to go for um, a car that exists in a game called Slaughter Race. It's, it's called, uh, oh gosh, uh, Shank. It's Shank's car which goes for like $30,000 or something. So it will actually be above the the money that they need to buy this item that they have now gotten from eBay. So the thing with the loot hunting, this is a part of the film where when I first saw it in the theater, it made my fucking blood boil. So- (laughs) Oh, my blood's boiling. Dude, okay, here's the thing. If Ralph Breaks the Internet was just a bad sequel that was kind of like, formulaic or it wasn't particularly compelling or it was just plain boring, I kind of would have just written it off like, eh, I didn't much care for it, but it's basically harmless. Mm -hmm. What I find especially egregious about Ralph 2 and why I don't see it as harmless is the inclusion of the loot hunting side plot, which actually takes up a huge part of the movie. It's one of the main like side plots, if you will. Now, having this type of game mechanic placed in this movie in a sort of, oh, haha, isn't this funny that this is a thing? And just kind of playing it for laughs? That would be bad enough. Like, I thought that was bad enough. The loot boxes, loot crates, microtransactions, other gambling mechanics in modern games have an actual real cost to actual real people. (laughs) Playing it up as a joke completely ignores any of the real world consequences of these practices. But the filmmakers, couldn't even stop there. They had to take it a step further because the whole reason that Vanellope gets introduced to the world of Slaughter Race in the first place 
hunting this high ticket item in the game in order to essentially gouge some real person out in the real world into paying thousands of dollars for it. Thousands of dollars that this real world person might not have without incurring huge amounts of debt or feeding an addiction that might already exist. Meanwhile, in the world of the game, Vanellope falls in love with Slaughter Race. It's painted as her dream. This is the thing that she's been searching for. This is her purpose. It's the thing that she wants apparently more than anything else. So she and other characters say multiple times on multiple occasions, isn't it great that things are never the same here? That there's no routine, there's so much variety, there are so many new things to do. Now, I'll be the first to admit, routine can be a drag. It can get exhausting, and I do think that there's a lot of merit to having variety and change in one's life. However, the movie frames this idea within a world where predatory gambling mechanics and the culture of scalpers and scam artists that directly sprang from them not only exist, but are presented without any critique, without any commentary, without any mention of the real world consequences. We don't see the other side of that screen where some kid just charged thousands of dollars to his parents' credit card for in-game purchases, which is a thing that actually happened. Not once do any of our heroes stop and say, hey, you know, stealing this car for the purpose of overcharging some sucker in the real world seems kind of wrong. Maybe we shouldn't be doing this. No. Ralph single-mindedly thinks that the ends justify the means because it will save Vanellope. And for her, it's the literal and figurative vehicle for which she gets to experience the thrills and variety that she's been seeking. The only reason they stop is because Shank basically forces them to and then leads them down an entirely different kind of shit pipeline by directing them to BuzzTube. This part of the film doesn't even come close to qualifying as satire because the conclusion of it all seems to be, hey, loot boxes are good, actually. At the end, Vanellope states outright that she found her dream game. Yeah, great. A game that unironically promotes addictive gambling mechanics. Fucking great. The really fucked up thing is that at one point, Ralph actually calls out the game for being dangerous. And he's right. Games like Slaughter Race can be dangerous, just not for the reason that he or the filmmakers apparently think that it is. So this to me was just it's so incredibly irresponsible, especially because this film is marketed largely to kids, the group of people most vulnerable to these kinds of predatory practices. I promise I am almost done. I just want to end it by saying, as always, I would direct folks to the always brilliant Jimquisition, and in particular, their video called The Addictive Cost of Predatory Video Game Monetization. It's a couple of years old now, but has not lost any of its relevancy, especially with the recent influx of NFTs. I highly recommend this video if anyone would like to know more about how these practices affect people in the real world. It's incredibly well researched. It places the actual tangible results of these predatory practices in understandable terms. And lastly, thank God for James Stephanie Sterling. Dropping the mic. Spike. <laughs> and we're <Wow>. done. <laughs> that will do. <laughs> Thank you, Maya. That, that was, was wonderful. That was you basically being Joanna Wick going through Ralph Breaks the Internet <laughs> and leaving a trail of corpses behind. Wow. I will now play you a recording from the writer's room. 
Of course I have empathy for players like Dirty Socks 537 and, and Abraham Lincoln. But if we just let them win, where's the life lesson, you know? Yeah, but to Pyro's point, I mean, those players work so hard to get here. I hear you, Felony, but imagine a game without challenges. The same predictable thing every single time? Who wants that? Shank's right. You know, I just saw a really insightful TED talk, and I can't really remember what the guy said. It was more about how he made me feel, but I think ultimately the point was, I honor your journeys, guys. Yeah, that's about the shape of it, folks. Okay, I am going to add to that because I do, I do want to try and keep us to our 45 minutes per film. What you mentioned about BuzzTube frustrated yes. the hell out of me. I'm just going to mention it as someone who is a content creator for uh, yeah. the internet. And that's the other big egregious thing, but I'll hand it off to you to go into that shit. Thank you. Mine's relatively short. Uh, basically, like I have been the person looking at clicks, looking at download numbers, obsessing about it, being told, don't think about the download numbers. I love our audience and how decent everybody is. I worry about it diminishing, I worry about it increasing, and having different expectations to fulfill. It's very easy to tell a creator, just make what you know, make what you want for the audience you want. But when it's also attached to your livelihood, and there is a correlation between output and effort, what you talk about, how much you talk about, and how, and being able to pay the bills, it leaves you constantly questioning what you should be doing. What we're basically presented with here in the BuzzTube thing is the idea of performing for likes, performing for clicks, the idea of like, if you keep doing this and keep everything fresh and keep it, you, you go viral, you become huge, then someone like say Chewbacca Mom, which they reference. If <laughs> Chewbacca Mom had been like, well, I've got, I've got to make the most of this. Like people are suddenly, like my YouTube uh, subscription has gone from 12 to 12 million people who all want to know what Chewbacca Mom thinks. I'm not, I'm using it as a hypothetical. Ultimately, becoming obsessed with performing for people and specifically in the way that Ralph does it here, in a way that actually actively hurts you whilst you're experiencing a level of anxiety over an impossible to control flow. Ralph gets 1.3 million hits in 10 minutes with his funny, I'm gonna wreck it, like air being blown in his face. That does not happen. Do you know why? Because someone huge has to broadcast it. You can't just start a YouTube account, have a funny little video, and then it just suddenly goes viral. The only way that can go viral, they need to show you that Yaz Queen, or whatever the fuck her name is, is the one <laughs> that makes that thing go viral. You need a person to broadcast this to other people. Our numbers for our show went up huge the moment Daniel Floyd guested and we talked about Avatar back in the day when Avatar was not a thing that people talked about all over YouTube. You need a tastemaker to basically broadcast you to their audience. So he gets 1.3 million in 10 minutes and then thus gets the approval of Yas Queen, this tastemaker, who then goes, right, so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna kind of pump this up. And they draw a direct comparison between likes, these little hearts, and money. They say all of these hearts, likes, clicks, equal money. How does that work? Well, it just converts them. No, no, how does it actually work? They sidestep advertising. They don't go, these equal ad revenues, but you're gonna have to push yourself to the limit in order to maximize them. They say, when people like you, money happens. 
That is so fucking toxic to tell children. When people like you, money happens? Go out there. I can't. Can't lives in a house on Wont Street. You will not embarrass me in front of the entire supper club. I told them you were going to sing the lollipop song. But I don't feel like singing. Nobody gives a damn what you feel. You've got an audience out there, and they want to hear you sing. Now, you want your mommy to love you. You go out there, and you do the only thing you're good for, which is singing the goddamn lollipop song. And BuzzTube itself... Which, by the way, they mention YouTube, so this exists in a world where YouTube also exists. BuzzTube mm -hmm. is this frustrating mix of half-truths, outright lies, exaggeration, misinformation, time compression, garbage about hearts, bypassing the concept of ads, encouraging kids to follow positively positioned pop-ups, which I mentioned before, because the pop-ups actually lead to his videos. So they're basically saying, well, you know, thanks to the help of pop-ups, Ralph was able to become more popular. And the worrying framing of self-harm videos. Oh, look, it's a box full of bees. Ah! Lot of stuff about eating things you shouldn't eat and things being on fire. He's not eating Tide Pods. He didn't get to that stage yet. But kids <laughs> do latch on to the idea of I'm going to do something extreme for that attention because attention equals hearts equals money equals success. <sighs> and they ignore the fact that this happens in like a day in a way that would absolutely completely wreck a regular person. You know Leo DiCaprio in The Wolf of Wall Street when he's crawling along the ground screaming? That's where this ends. That's where this ends yeah. for Ralph, if he was a real person. This obsession with riding the popularity wave to fame and fortune in a way that would in real life lead to burnout, serious injury, nervous breakdown, even if you don't get any of the rest of it, you would fixate on this. But specifically if it's like, it's all about I've got to get this much money for a thing, if a kid gets into this because they need a very specific huge amount of money that kid's not getting anything good happen to them and it's all to give eBay 30k for a $200 item on a sale that should never have even gone through this is before we even get to the lame ass princess side quest oh, thing oh god Ugh. the princess thing made my skin crawl it was uh, like I Rewatching it, it was just like cringe after cringe after cringe. It was so uncomfortable. All this <laughs> is, is... Remember in 2001 when Shrek happened? <laughs> Shrek made by Disney's old friend slash arch enemy, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Jeffrey! Which was this <laughs> condemnation of Disney uh, for all of its tweeness. I'll take you forward to Shrek the Third, the worst Shrek. The one where all the princesses are hanging out together. And they made Rapunzel the villain because Disney hadn't made Tangled yet. And Julie Andrews headbutts walls with her princess powers. Around about 2007 with Enchanted, Disney started doing this themselves, but in a kinder way, where it was like, you know what? Enchanted is like, if a Disney princess was real, it would be pretty silly. But then by the end, thanks to, by the way, Adina Menzel, who's in this film and everyone forgets, and the mm -hmm. wonderful Amy Adams, it kind of, there is, there is merit to the whole Disney princess fantasy side of it. Enchanted is a lovely film. I originally, when I first saw the trailer, was like, oh, bloody hell, they're doing a Shrek thing. As it turned out, it's really lovely. Weirdly, Enchanted is not available to watch on Disney Plus. You're going to have to track it down on disc or rent it. And then they did 
Frozen, and a, ver- a variety of other films like The Princess and the Frog and Moana, which challenge the older way of doing things. And things like mm-hmm. Moana do it really, really well. This is it a trailer gag. Cynical. It's not for anything deeper or more investigative mm. than a trailer gag. Yeah. This whole section on the princesses, as you're hearing it now, I recorded back when I saw the second trailer for Ralph Breaks the Internet. I did not release this as a response because I wanted the movie to be more than it looked. So you're hearing it for the first time now, with a couple of little edits to reorientate for the year this is being released and my child's name and gender identity. Now, there are three options here, and we aren't given the context for any of them. One, these are the literal digital embodiments of the Disney princesses. No questions asked. They are them, with all the experiences we've seen them have, and their job is to greet excited children. Two, these are simple AI digital creations that only look like the Disney princesses, uncomplicated algorithms designed to deliver responses to excited children. And three, they are the avatars for human women hired by Disney to represent the company online and greet excited children. Whichever of these it is, there is clearly a deliberate parallel with the paid actresses who work the parks in Orlando and Anaheim and Paris and Tokyo. We, Sharon Willow and I, met a Tiana and a Rapunzel when we went on our first vacation together back in 2017, two million years ago. And it was really rather special. Both of them hugged Willow answered a few of their questions, posed for a photo or two, and stayed in character the whole time. They signed Willow's little autograph book. It made Sharon cry. These women live to make children happy. They love their jobs, and those are fiercely fought for privileged roles. This isn't a giant hot dog costume you're forced to wear and give out flyers. It's a responsibility, and that's a part of the Disney tradition and a huge aspect of the draw for a lot of Disney fans. Meeting the people dressed as Mickey and Minnie and Jafar and Chippendale and, and now Kylo Ren. So keep that in your heads when you imagine Vanellope glitching into their private room and the princesses all freaking out at the sight of a sweet, funny, sassy, smart little girl who appears and startles them. <gasps> Hi. <laughs> princess too. They all recoil back from her and point weapons at the intruder. Jasmine brandishes Aladdin's lamp as an improvised blunt instrument. You can see Merida readying an arrow behind her. Pocahontas is carrying a Native American club very like the one which nearly bashed John Smith's brains out and she points it at this child. And Cinderella, in the most fucking blood-chilling moment, snatches off her glass slipper and smashes it in half, creating a razor-sharp, jagged cutting edge with which to mutilate and possibly kill this little girl. There is a frenzied terror in her eyes, and she's ready to use it. It's like a prison movie. The princesses go on to say, and I quote, What kind of a princess are you? Uh, Do you have magic hair? No. Magic hands? No. Do animals talk to you? No. Were you poisoned? No. Cursed? No. Kidnapped or enslaved? No. Are you guys okay? Should I call the police? If you've seen Wreck-It Ralph 1, you'll know that despite saying no here, yes, Vanellope was cursed. Turbo 
An intruder from another game went into the code on Sugar Rush and corrupted her data, giving her a permanent glitching problem and removing her relationship with the rest of the land so that everyone forgets her. That's gaslighting. It's the modern-day digital version of a curse. And he did it so that everyone would focus on him as he posed as the Candy King. It's a metaphor for how conniving, underhanded, obsessive men will crush a woman to steal her power. What appears to be happening here is that they're throwing all the Disney princesses into a bucket and saying, this thing is much like this thing, which is like this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing, and this thing. my island and the girl who loves the sea it calls me the disney princess is a constantly evolving and fluid pathway of reincarnation growing more complex with every new life to callously reduce all of them to snow white ignores the decades of growth and learning and understanding of the studio effectively criticizing their endeavors to move forward tarring them with the same brush you used to condemn the simple fairy tale representation of nearly a century ago itself based on centuries old fairy tale it's not powerful it's misleading it's not clever it's stupid it's not complex it's oversimplifying it's not deep it's shallow it ignores the fact that the man in these tales from 1989 onwards with Prince Eric by and large plays a support role. Sometimes they have their own arc away from selfishness like Beast and Prince Naveen, but in my lifetime these have been stories about girls taking what control they can and the level of that has grown and grown. This trailer, and one last time I hope I'm wrong, seems to be born of a million YouTube videos put out over the last decade all of them saying the filthy truth behind Beauty and the Beast is that Belle was kidnapped. Man, how fucked up is Disney? The reality is that they've heard our remarks for a long time, since well before YouTube gave every loudmouth a platform. And as a studio, they're moving forwards all the time. And far from being the progressive revelation this trailer moment is being hailed as all over Twitter, like, this moment is everything. It makes me deeply sad that the ongoing story of the Disney princess so nuanced, added to like a family quilt handed down across generations of animators and inspiring little girls and indeed little boys everywhere for the past 80 years can be reduced to this dismissive of a punchline. Makers of Ralph Wrecks the Internet, please, please prove me wrong with a film that says something profound about how we process information collectively. It didn't. Pretty much, yeah. Um, in this scene, though, there is the one thing that did genuinely make me laugh. So just so you know, I did laugh one time. At the Meredith thing? Movie, and that's... It's where um, there's a, a lineup of people asking uh, baby Groot questions, mm -hmm. and I got a legitimate laugh over the fact that um, Jason Manzukis, who is a, a podcaster and a comedian actor, oh, he's, he's Derek, isn't he? He's complaining about all of these useless, like trivial Marvel bullshit trivia things yeah. like an actual internet troll and this was like the one thing in the film that felt genuine to the actual internet and hearing Manzukas's voice just made me laugh yeah 
I agree. Um, yeah. the, the princess bit is not entirely without merit in that um, once they're in kind of like just chill out clothes, the, the problem is to have this as the answer to the joke suggests that Disney themselves are forcing the princesses to be like their idealized selves and that the letting them go from that and letting them just chill out, you know, is freeing to them. You need a whole film. For that, if that's going to be your thing, you can't just have it as a side gag in Wreck-It Ralph 2 and just sell the film on that. The the Merida gag about she's from the other studio and, and uh, Kelly MacDonald doing this incredibly broad Glaswegian accent is uh, fantastic. I just I love that little bit of it. A couple of the little notes. And the, that was and funny, too. The <laughs> fact that they've got the voice actresses for most of them back is kind of lovely. Alan Menken did the score for this, taken over from Henry Jackman. And that becomes it becomes apparent why when they save the day and save Ralph, because he does a little refrain from all of their films in a like... Remember when the, Disney was doing this? And it makes me well up each time. Because that's Alan Menken doing Alan Menken, because he scored most of the Disney 90s renaissance. In fact, let's have a mini Sound of Gonzo here. This is Moana by Mark Mancina. This is The Little Mermaid by Alan Menken. Uh, Frozen by Christoph Beck. Brave by Patrick Doyle. Mulan by Jerry Goldsmith. Pocahontas by Alan Menken. And that one was Cinderella by Oliver Wallace and Paul J. Smith. And the princesses all save Ralph. You know, at last, they're saving a guy. Uh, you know, like most of them have already done. I've said a million times on the show already, Disney have absolutely no reason not to bring back this kind of hand-drawn 2D animated film, especially now with Disney+. Plus. They could make it an annual event and have this... Academy of Artists and go behind the scenes and show how they're learning to draw again and like unveiled this special thing at Christmas every year and suddenly Disney's got this prestige going again. But back to another of Disney's unnecessary sequels. The film ends with Ralph's insecurity, it's a little on the nose but it's it's neat, making a giant bunch of duplicates of Ralph which turn into a Stapoff Marshmallow Man, Ralph, who wants to keep Vanellope for itself. And this is all of Ralph's anxieties. And then he tells himself, you've got to let her go. It will hurt badly, but it's best for her. And then it then culminates after the, the princess bit with Vanellope saying goodbye to him and sort of waving. And it's very much a your kid goes off to college scenario. And that was the best handled bit of the whole film. And I could pretty much have just... just 
jumped straight there after it. Like, they, this could have been a short, frankly. Like a 15-minute short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand what they were trying to do with the ending of the film, and I don't think it's a bad message, but it does, after all of the other things that actually happen in the film, it feels very unearned. It really does. Mm. Like, to me, it's like, I get what you're trying to do, but it's falling flat because all of this other stuff was in your movie. And this takes up like 80% of it. Side note, um, they've kind of paralleled uh, Vanellope's glitching with being, with having some kind of mental or physical condition or uh, being on the spectrum in some capacity and having anxiety problems and, 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 and reacting badly when that occurs. But Ralph himself doesn't seem to really take that on board and isn't particularly great at soothing her. They, like if you're going to make that a parallel with the character, you got to you got to do something about that. You got to have Ralph realize what he needs to do, and then when she's going off, he needs to talk to Shank about the fact that listen, she glitches sometimes when things get a little bit overwhelming, and you just like have Shank actually kind of be a big sister to her. She's there, but Shank doesn't seem to have any understanding of the whole glitching side of things. Which again, like you you got to just throw that in as as character flavor and then not address it. You said it was an irregularity or a spike in cortisol and adrenaline, which well, sets that's her off. Well, yeah, that's the way I read it. I mean, it's it, it's obviously she has no real chemicals; she's code. Absolutely, but it's the it's the. Parallel. But in the first film, it was framed as something which, if it's channeled appropriately, actually has benefits. Mm. And ultimately, adrenaline yeah, and it, cortisol. Like it can be have, a good thing. Yeah, we have those chemicals for a reason. In certain circumstances, they help us survive. But when they flood the brain in circumstances where being in total fight or flight mode is actually not going to be very helpful, then they create ongoing anxiety problems and, and that can be a factor in all sorts of different conditions. Mm. That was one element of, of Vanellope's design that I always really, really liked. But you're absolutely right here. They use it a couple of times as a visual cue that she is upset, but that's all. And they don't follow up on it. Yeah. Also, the actual follow-up on the Ralph throwing himself hard into BuzzTube is... He eventually reads the comments, and the comments are shitty about him because they always are, but what it reads as, the flip side of being successful is that people will hate you. Uh, No, (laughs) there's there's other things that come with desperately trying to flagellate yourself for the entertainment of the masses. Yeah, this is like the one thing that I feel like they kind of threw in to be like, Oh, yeah, we are actually saying that there's a bad side to all of this. But again, because it's so small and it happens so quickly and it's just kind of brushed aside, like it's such a tiny part of the film. Like it just it again, it falls flat. It doesn't feel like it's earned. Yeah. And again, it it implies that if you are that well known or even if you're not that well known, but you just happen to put your creative energies and in some people's cases, their financial and survival energies into a format that is dependent on how popular you are and how widely you're being circulated. The, oh, just don't read the comments. That's that's not a thing. You can't not read the comments because <laughs> yeah. your friends, people you care about will re-fucking tweet them and tag you in. Oh, look at this shitty thing somebody said about you. I wasn't reading it for a reason. 
And the other thing is, ultimately, you have to keep the comments going. You have to keep the dialogue there open. If you turn off comments on your video, it drops off the algorithm. The word algorithm, the concept, really, of algorithm never comes up in this film that is effectively about symbolizing algorithms. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just... Disney is such a gigantic corporation like they are the biggest basically the biggest company in the world they have a massive platform they have a tremendous like unfathomable amount of influence and for them to to be so ignorant to how so many of these potentially harmful things work and to write it off as just laughs it's just lols it's just you know it's just for the clicks it's just for the likes feels so incredibly irresponsible. I shouldn't be surprised, but I also feel like, as a company, they should know better. At, at best, it's naive, but when you think about the fact that to get as big as they have as a company, to still be mm -hmm. the dominant company in spite of the fact that the world has changed around them on multiple mm -hmm. occasions, you are not telling me that they don't have an entire department of people that they hire specifically to know how this yes, shit works. Yes, to do this exact thing. Yeah, exactly. And their conclusion is also, hey, you know what? Uh, Slaughter Race seems pretty uh, intimidating and dangerous and the internet itself seems pretty confusing but it's okay parents you you don't have to know all about this stuff all you need to know is that allowing your kids to wander off into it completely unprotected they're okay they're in good hands okay cool right as long as that's established I did also ask you when we were tweeting back and forth um, and, and our tweets became little birds because that's funny um <laughs> Because, you know, the internet is basically just made of kitties and doggies and, uh, and, and beeps. Um, oh, God. Okay. Can I really quickly? The, did you guys watch through to the mid-credits scene that they throw in there? Mm -hmm. It's the one that's that from, in shit, the teaser that, that was very popular. That was, like, genuinely upsetting to me. Like, I was just like, oh, my God. I feel like I'm watching a nightmare because <laughs> the, the, fuck, the fucking rabbit hole of, like, Child, specifically kids videos uh, on YouTube mm -hmm. and like how the algorithm like twists them and perverts them and like uh, is like oh my god like I just got reminded of that shit and then the little girl like screams at the end and I was like this is this is not funny this is a fucking nightmare like I, it, I, I almost jumped out of my skin at that point it was so upsetting to me uh, hang on there's a uh, folding ideas episode Yes, there is. Um, yeah, Dan Olson, uh, this was a while ago. Yeah, he did like a... Um, it's called a Weird kid. Kids Video Games yes. and Gaming the Algorithm. Sorry, Weird that's Kids it. Videos and Gaming the Algorithm. Uh, that's the one where he talks about like entirely mm -hmm. unofficial uh, Shrek and Spider-Man and Joker and Pregnant Elsa and Bouncing yeah. on a Bed and just little YouTube videos procedurally generated but with no human being watching them made of algorithmically as cobbled together bits that kids could, unattended, just swipe their way through the whole time but it's okay yeah. it's incredibly disturbing and that mid-credit yeah. sequence just made me think of that and i was like oh my god i i need to throw up now yeah this is, this is terrible but the the last and um i think i, I suppose um weirdly ominous 
thing that I asked you was, could Disney get their own internet without blackjack or hookers? Because their vision of what the internet could, and let's face it, what they think the internet should be, is a nice kind of Magic Kingdom version of of the uh, online experience. And it feels like if anyone was going to make an internet that they was somehow so regulated and so controlled that you could just let a child loose on it, it would be Disney. Mm-hmm. Could Disney themselves create an internet so sanitised that, <laughs> that no they one themselves would pay could... to use it? <laughs> because I can tell you now, that internet is not coming without a price tag. Yeah, there's that. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and also guess that that price tag doesn't necessarily correlate directly and only with currency. Mm. Okay, so that was a rather dark look into Ralph Breaks the Internet. <laughs> based on Ralph a joke about a lady's me, ass. Okay? <laughs> oh, Ralph you will long for the emptiness and pointlessness of Chicken Little. <laughs> yeah, uh, honestly, the way you describe it there... This might be Disney's worst film. Because, I mean, all of the bad films aren't peddling. This actually makes Songs of the South seem well-meaning. I mean, really, yeah. Like, I... It's because they don't understand or they don't present it as if they understand the the actual harm that it could do. Yeah. That it makes me just feel like, yeah, this this is the worst because of what it represents. It's wildly irresponsible. Which makes Frozen Correct. 2 like, look like Frozen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did these in the right order. Yes, we did. That's why, yeah, you know, we were going to do it in this order anyway, but it's just fortuitous that we could. So, energy people, Frozen 2. Far away, as north as we can go, once stood an enchanted forest. You see an enchanted forest? Yes, it was a magical place, but something went wrong. Since then, no one can get in or out. Papa, that was epic. What would I do without you? You'll always have me. Has Elsa seemed weird to you? She seems like Elsa. There's this voice. Voice? What does that mean? not safe. Find who is calling to you. They may have answers. I'm going with you. Anna? No. Excuse me, I climbed the North Mountain, survived a frozen heart, and saved you from my ex-boyfriend, so, you know, I'm coming. That's normal. Where are we? How did you get in the forest? The mist parted for us. Impossible. Where did you learn magic? Elsa, get out of there! You can't just follow me into fire. Then don't run into fire. Magic is very alluring. Without you, she may lose herself to it. Protect Arendelle at all costs. I 
believe in you, Elsa, more than anyone or anything. Quick question. Is the whole putting us in mortal danger gonna be a regular thing? <laughs> I'll be honest, I couldn't recognise any of the male voices on that trailer, except for Olaf. Right, let me synopsize for you. <clears throat> Elsa and Anna go north to the forest in search of answers. The answers they find are minimal, and Elsa stays behind. Okay, so... <clears throat> anybody else notice that Daddy looks like Hans? Yes, he did! That was so weird. I was like, why did they design him like that? Yeah. Uh, again, what I just said there is extremely reductive, but if you boil it down, there was a lot of expectation with this. It's, it seems like a quest, and it seems like a, a quest that has to have answers at the end of it that are conclusive and pretty weighty, that will, that will impact upon them as people. And the conclusions are so minimal, so slight, like a little wisp mm. of air, that it's like, hang on, what did they discover? And you might even forget how the ending actually happens. And then at the end, Anna gets to go and be Queen of Arendelle, and then she tweets Elsa with the wind, which is called Gale. It's pretty much the same ending as uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet. Like, he still, he still gets to talk to Vanellope using his uh, Star Trek um, <laughs> little communicator thing. <laughs> Um, so, so it's like both films are saying, you know what? Um, you may have someone that's close to you, but just just let them go. They've they've got other things to do. Except in this one, it it almost feels like because there don't the stakes don't seem to be very high mm. at first. Like Elsa starts hearing this voice that seems to be calling her to something, and I actually think that this could have been a, a kind of intriguing. Uh, component of the you know that they bring up here what do you do once like your main adventure like you've already had the main adventure you've mm. already had like the big quest and and this this um, mission of self-discovery and everything so what do you do after you have to go home and then like do the day-to-day -day stuff yeah and they kind of hint at it in the movie but they don't go very deep into it it's just that like Elsa has this weird hang-up about messing up being the queen for some reason, but, like, we don't see any consequences of, like, her actually messing up or mm. the people not really liking her or still being afraid of her. Like, they don't show us any of that. So it seems to just kind of come out of nowhere. At least it did for me. It felt like the setup for this next adventure was very thin. Mm. I completely agree. The original Frozen earned them over a billion and legitimized their new way of animation, which uh, they had coined with um, Tangled, which is a wonderful film. Both Frozen oh, yeah. and Tangled I, I are love Tangled. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and I really liked Frozen 2. I love Tangled. That's on, uh, actually uh, one of my favorites. Did you say Frozen of the... 2 or Frozen as well? Frozen as well. There you the go. first Frozen movie is great, and Tangled is great. And you know, it, it surprised me how much I liked Frozen because I wasn't expecting that much of it. And mm. what they actually produced was something that was visually stunning, had really great music, great characters, a great twist on a very traditional Disney trope at the end. I liked what they did with all of that stuff. And when I get to Frozen 2, I couldn't help but think like, 
well, these characters and this first movie were insanely popular and made shit billion dollars, so we have to do something with them now. Yeah, and that's what they do. Something. But it's a pretty vague something. <laughs> and uh, so, so yeah, you're right. There, there, there's, there's kind of a, we don't know what we're doing. Now, I'm going to kind of fill in the blanks here as we go, because uh, there's a bunch of deleted scenes. They don't make the film that much better, which is a problem. So I feel like there was other things. And there is most... Definitely a point in this film where it feels like, oh my God, what are we going to do here? What are we leading up to? What is all of the, what have all of these clues we've been given just in terms of... And I, I hate the idea of like the whole thing's a big mystery and then here's going to be the big reveal. We've been attuned by certain books in the 2000s to believe that everything even vaguely mysterious has this incredible mystery laid out under the surface and then when we finally get to the end we're all going to go oh we crave that oh feeling so much so that a lot of us write what the oh's gonna be and then get really pissed off when it's not that oh a lot of the time that mystery is just there for atmosphere and that's fine we should be okay with everything not being a puzzle box but characterization is something I expect in movies. And development is something that I look for in sequels. She's following a voice out into the wilderness. So you're like, okay, so what is this? I can hear you, but I won't. Some look for trouble while others don't. There's a thousand reasons I should go about my day and ignore your whispers, which I wish would go away. Oh. Oh. You're not a voice, you're just a ringing in my ear. And if I heard you, which I don't, and spoken for, I fear. Everyone I've ever loved is here within these walls. I'm sorry, secret siren, but I'm blocking out your calls. I've had my adventure, I don't need something new. I am afraid of what I'm risking if I follow you into the unknown. Into the
And Frozen, obviously there were huge expectations, but there was a certain level of pressure on Disney from progressive Disney fans who are like, right, okay, Disney, in your last film, your establishing film of this, you told us that true love does not need to necessarily be a prince and a princess or a guy mm -hmm. and a girl. A sister can love another sister, and that is true love. So that should work for the magic exactly as much as uh, as, as any yeah, you know prince coming along, which we established in 1927. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a romantic love. Yeah, which is a lovely, lovely way of, of, of ending that film. Because it's... I mean, there aren't any other films which are really about two sisters in, in the Disney canon who rely on each other that much in that kind of, with that level of closeness. And the, the other dissatisfying thing about this is ultimately that you're breaking up this duet, which everyone likes. And it's, it's like, okay, so it, it better be for a good reason. We don't have that much of a reason. Okay, then. So you kind of walk out going, so why did the... the... But, yeah, why? Yeah. But like I said... Progressive groups were basically saying, okay, so Elsa's struggle, Elsa's trying to, to, to self-actualize, to work out who she is, is analogous to a lot of different people's journey into life and realizing I'm not like everybody else, which means there was a huge LGBTQ following going, right, gay Elsa, we need mm -hmm. gay Elsa or trans Elsa or something that makes it clear and is endorsed canonically by Disney as yes, this is the first princess who will find herself a princess or just anyone else like, or, or who realizes something else about herself or himself and, and, and go through a transition of some kind in this sequel and for Disney to actually finally go, you know what? Yeah, we've got enough power to piss off the people who would hate this. And watching Frozen 2, you're like, oh my god, they're gonna... No, they didn't. And no, they, they have no intention of pissing off that, let's face it, folks, fucking enormous crowd. Now, you can blame global uh, audiences, and uh, specifically uh, the, uh, the, the, the ones who tell Disney what they can and can't put in to uh, uh, their films, not specifically the audiences of, say, China, but the leaders of China who say we don't want this this or this in our films so Disney have been doing those kind of half-assed measures of like having a cop in uh, Onward mention that she has a girlfriend and it's like oh my god how progressive is that but this was a huge big deal that loads of people were like is, is Elsa finally going to get a girlfriend and I seem, seem to remember various people saying no of course Elsa's not going to get a girlfriend this is Disney remember yeah, exactly. Am I the only one that thought they were kind of angling for Kristoff to end up with that rider guy who who kind of strolls in as like, oh, are they going somewhere with that? Honestly, and, well, of, of course they're not because it's like you said, it's Disney. Of course they're not going to have uh, two guys get together. That's even worse. Yeah, um, they had him hang out with uh, Michael Sarah, and then they had Elsa hang out with uh, what was her name? The uh, Honey Marin. Honey Marin, uh, and it almost seems like they're taunting us by going, "Hey." I think it was Bob again who, who said that they almost... This was actually about Raya, not Frozen 2, but the same applies. Like, set this up in a way as to go, look, we know you folks are going to write your own fanfics about these, so just here's some lovely <laughs> characters. Go nuts. You can yeah, have whatever some, you want these characters be. Here's the material be, for it. But we're not actually going to back that up with facts. We're just going to give this to you to rewrite, if you'd like. But the song, Show Yourself actually seems to actively torment the people who want something more from Elsa. 
I saw, sh- I, you know, I, I sat through it like, like, like my, my heart was beating. I was like, oh my God, they're actually going to do it. She starts off singing a song about trembling all over. And I'm like, oh my God, this song is basically about masturbation and finding yourself through that and realizing what kind of person you are, who you're attracted to, who you are inside, and just all of this femininity. I'm like, wait, Jesus. So, okay, so what's next? And that's before she even leaves her water horse because we've got this horse energy just pouring off this film. And she goes into what I referred to to Sharon, and I'm sorry, but this is actually what it is. The Cave of Frozen Vaginas. And then oh she my God, right? wanders through <laughs> this gorgeous, smooth triangular when i say bicolored they fill this fucking section of the film with pink and purple fire and And they and like yeah it's like they're promising she is gonna meet the biased transist panist beyond gayest yet somehow at the same time asexual but not aromantic non-binary gender fluid furry firebender and then she's just sort of sliding through all these sort of uterine canals, going, show yourself, in Idina Menzel's tear-jerking voice, because she's so fucking powerful. It's wonderful. I hear you, and I'm coming.
the end of the song, she goes, right, so who are you? This thing that I've been searching for, this person outside myself or possibly inside myself, I don't know. Who am I and who are you? And it's like, you know what? You are everything you need to be. You are the, all the else you ever had to be, okay? Just gonna pat you on the back and send you on your way. Oh, by the way, your grandpa was a shit. Colonialism, what? Oh, we're not gonna deal with that one. Okay, so now you're frozen. What? What the living fuck yeah, was that? Very strange. It's like, and, and I wasn't even sure, like, I was very confused by this section. I was like, what just happened there? But then when they come back to Anna, it's like she can feel that something has happened to Elsa, and it's like this big outpouring of grief. And I'm sitting there going, what? The grief, what is she grieving? Is she grieving Olaf? Like, what? What is happening? I don't understand. Like, why is she so upset right now? Because I didn't actually connect the dots that Elsa is supposed to be, I guess, dead at this point. Yeah. Um, from the sounds of the deleted scenes, um, earlier on, they were going to find a room with books that were forbidden to be read. And they sort of break in and then they find their mother's shawl. That's how it enters into the uh, um, the text of the film. And they find books written in hand, you know, handwriting talking about magic that was found up north. And they're like, oh, that this isn't dad's handwriting. It's moms and later on they find out that they're and I asked Sharon who was seeing it for the second time uh, to explain to me who was seeing it for the third time hang on when they get to the frozen versions of their parents that they find in this frozen shipwreck and water has memory which weirdly endorses homeopathy in a kind of well it's not saying homeopathy and at the same time people could totally take that reading away which is potentially very dangerous if not combined with actual scientifically proven medicine I said, what did they conclude from what their parents were doing? Maya, you saw it for the first time. So three, two, one, six times we've seen it between us. What did they find out from their parents? That they were from like, like what I got out of it was that they were just from the opposing sides. Like they were from the, you know, like the kind of colonialist uh, where their father came from, where their horrible grandfather uh, grandfather yeah. was basically trying to usurp these people these indigenous peoples in their lands and their mother actually was from this these indigenous peoples mm. yeah that's why uh, elsa stays at the end basically she's she's going with this half of herself to stay with these people and effectively create a union between the two cultures and um, to punctuate that, there was going to be an enormous tidal wave while Elsa was frozen in this cave, and it was actually going to straight up destroy Arendelle. And then it was going to be, right, we have to rebuild. We are now two peoples working together, and they were going to rebuild Arendelle with um, architecture of both their cultures to, it, to make it effectively a republic city, a, a, a place where all were welcome. And that would have been neat. But luckily, they changed that so that Elsa stops the tidal wave with her superpowers. So when she comes back at the end and she's galloping on the horse, Anna's like, is it really you? She spent a lot more of the film absent and presumed dead. This film was going to be a lot more about Anna finding herself. And actually, the, the to do the next right thing is actually a really touching song about, look, I don't have superpowers. I can just do what the next right thing is. And, I, and I, I, the Olaf fading away thing was really sad. But I felt like, okay, is it, how long is it going to be before he comes back? It, I timed it this time. It's 13 minutes before Olaf comes back again. Because didn't they already yeah. play that card in the first Frozen? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
and yeah, like you know he's going to come back. There's no yeah, like of course he is. Yeah, but n- nowhere in the deleted scenes did they illustrate that um, uh, that someone was maybe a secret villain or that Elsa met someone who wasn't just her own mother held in the water who then tells her that you know you're you yeah. you are the all the else you need to be that's kind of where i thought they were going with it was like i thought that like the fifth spirit that they mentioned i thought that was totally going to be elsa's mom yeah i mean they they, they talk about earth's the five spirits you got earth and fire and and uh, uh water wind and then ice. So obviously the fifth one is heart, right? Because <laughs> we're Captain Planeting here. <laughs> uh, the fifth one being ice is like, wow, you folks made this and you have never heard of The Last Airbender. <laughs> That's amazing. Or any oh, incredible, of the mythological systems that involve four elements congregating around a fifth, which of is, which there are several. Which is almost always unilaterally spirit or some derivation there yeah, is. There are. Um, but uh, yeah, water and ice are linked in most of these uh, elemental pantheons. Do you pantheons. know why? Because ice is just oh my water God. that yeah. doesn't move. <gasps> Turns out the sixth what? element is, is mist. It's oh gas. Oh, my God. Sharon just blew my mind. Oh, my God. Are you telling me this whole time ice is just water? You that has been... Surprise frozen. ending. Okay, so another aspect that we, we were going to find out, uh, which was to address the fact that something we said back when we covered our Frozen, uh, our Frozen in our show, um, was that the parents were actually uh, deciding as they journeyed back, look, we have to tell Anna about this, about her sister. We have to stop Elsa from covering this up, conceal, don't feel. We've actually hurt our daughters doing this. We've been bad parents. We're going to come back and, and do that. The fact that it was reactive to them being told, no, this is really bad, isn't much better. The fact that they took it out is worse. <sighs> but it is a bit like the live-action Beauty and the Beast where they're like, oh, you wanted to know why the staff got turned into pots and pans? Well, let us tell you. Also, and this... Show yourself is one of the things that really got an emotional response yeah please talk to us about show yourself because you were crying yesterday and i asked you why and you started crying when you tried to describe (laughs) why yeah not just crying like properly wailing and and really being Hmm. emotionally thrown backwards side note by the way folks if you didn't see the cave of frozen vaginas that is absolutely fine that's just the way my brain works I don't think it was an accident. She is following a very feminine sounding voice. They yes. set it up very much like she's discovering her mother. Mm. Like it, there's Yannick imagery all over the place. So I don't yes. think that that's uh, unwarranted. The boat she puts Anna in, for God's sake. Did you see that top down? Yeah. That boat right. has lips. <laughs> right. Okay. So, yeah. Show yourself. I was. I was very much um, sort of told you same, you should tell the kids the same to mindset. Stay away, or at the same time, maybe the kids do need these knowledge bombs dropped on them. Okay, go. Okay. I'm so sorry. So yeah, no, no, no. So show yourself. I was very much in the in the same mind as you. The imagery is it, it's very um, very feminine, very uterine, uterine, yonic, vi- very bisexual in terms of the color energy that's flying around everywhere. It's a cave of it's, fallopia. It's emphasizing <laughs> the. Um, this this idea that spirit calls to spirit, therefore uh, Elsa is being drawn on by something which is like her. Yeah. Now, <sighs> turns out the fire spirit was just 
a lizard. Yeah. A little lizard uh, thing. Char- like, it was Charmander. Charmander Pascal all along. <laughs> it didn't I mean, have to be. And the Earth uh, Earthbender was just some stone giants yeah. out of The Hobbit. Um, it didn't have to be. I am not saying that I was desperate here for Elsa to get into some kind of romantic relationship because we've already explored in this the idea that there are multiple different kinds of love and that, you know, they don't all have to be the same. So it, it, it wasn't... I, I was not necessarily one of the people who was sat there being really pissed off that Elsa didn't get a girlfriend. To be blunt, I insist on a girlfriend for Elsa. Uh, frankly, it's not a, it's not that big an ask considering the, the 80 years of heteronormativity that Disney has clung to. It's not to. too big an ask whatsoever, but I would have been equally happy with her finding three other spirit people mm. and finding out that the, the four of them uniting creates this fifth spirit that's going to protect and balance the whole area or, mm. or something of that nature. That would have been fine as well. And believe us, Disney, we know you like money. We get the difficult position you were put in with this. We understand you'll be pissing off all of those evangelical moms who will no longer be buying Elsa dolls for their daughters in case they catch gay. But there are ways of making it allegorical, the way that Elsa was in the original Frozen, the way that mutants are in the X-Men, that many, many different types of people who don't fit the standard that I just mentioned can interpret as this feels close to my story. In fact, it's almost better if you make something that isn't just one thing, because then it can bring joy of identification to millions. Or, you know, representation. Maybe you shouldn't be letting those evangelical moms tell you what to do. One of the key elements of growing as a person who stands out from the crowd, and we've already established with Elsa's... uh, arc in the first film that she is brought up to believe that her her inner power is dangerous and something that she has to cut herself off from and her her arc in that is connect with yourself go off and explore who you are and realize that what is in you is enough it is not only enough it is incredibly strong and powerful and that's something that you need to find a way to bond with to become fully yourself as a person Having established all of that in the first one, what they achieve here is, and again, part of the reason why I got so emotional listening to the song is that it's it's next stage evolution for somebody who has that, that I've, I've stood out from the crowd my whole life, I've always been alone, I've always been isolated, and finding other people who who also stand out from the crowd but particularly stand out in the same way that you do is fucking key to being able to progress if you are a a, a woman who has um a neurology that stands out from the crowd if you have adhd or autism or if there is something about your sexuality that is that stands out from the, the crowd if there is something about your gender identity that goes against the norm if there is something about your your ethnicity that doesn't fit with the people who are around you finding other people who are like you is really really important and to go through that emotional high of there's something out there not that I could find here in this castle if I looked in a mirror long enough something that is out there that you have to go out and seek and eventually find the thing that that 
shows you it's not just you. There are other people who have the same experiences as you do and they are going to share their knowledge and their experience with you. That's massive. And to get to the end of that emotional journey and be told, hey kid, you're fine, just as you are. You're awesome, you have got this girl. You have to keep on carrying this burden entirely by yourself, by the way, because you're still the only one. Fuck off, that is as insidious as hell. And it is basically the next step of putting her back in the box of conceal, don't feel. Because when you've got particularly a, a, a woman or a female presenting person, of, uh, sorry, femme presenting person who has uh, the ability to change things and be powerful, and your answer to this is, right, here you go, you carry fucking everything. What you're doing then is keeping them so busy that they can't actually use the gifts they got. The worst thing about the internet has been how much hate can be generated by bringing the, the wrong people all together in one place. The best thing about the internet has been how much love and understanding and self-analysis and being able to, to reckon upon yourself by contrast with other people who do feel like you and unlike you, but effectively connecting people who felt lonely and isolated. If, if you're saying, I'm so lonely, and the conclusion is, well, you've got you, that's a deeply disappointing conclusion. And, you know, she ends up, you know, ruling the people of North Aldra, but she spent her entire time while she was up there on her own, apart from that one point where, like I said, she's chatting with, what's her name, Honey Lemon? Honey Marin. Honey Marin. Um, there's a point... Honey Lemon. <laughs> It's, it, she's barely in it. Uh, there's a point, by the way, in the movie where, like, Honey Marin goes out to sort of stroke this baby reindeer that's on Elsa's lap. And visually speaking, she's effectively stroking Elsa's leg. This is, again, what I feel like they're caught between providing the people who really want there to be much more complexity to all of these characters and who write their own fanfics. We have a couple of people mm. on our Discord who've been one specific person who's been writing a Frozen fanfic that's way better than Frozen 2. You know who you are. <laughs> the film itself shouldn't feel like it's catering to a very specific market. That was Ralph Breaks the Internet's problem. There needed to be a depth of feeling, not just scoring points for ticking progressive boxes. It needed to be a strong story from the get-go. And whether it goes in one direction or the other, the story itself is not strong. And I've rarely heard people saying that it is. It took six years between Frozen 1 and Frozen 2, and yet it was most definitely rushed. And I feel like this has got to kind of... A little bit of this has to go on Bob Iger, who I feel may have had a dream that after the end of winter 2019, it was going to be real friggin' hard to release <laughs> massive billion-dollar blockbusters in theatres. So it was like, it is imperative that we hit <laughs> our Frozen 2 date. And then yeah. it is imperative that we hit our Rise of Skywalker date. I don't care that we don't have time to develop them. I don't care that all of these threads have to be cut. Get them out there. And... Mm -hmm. I think he's owned that on on on, uh, on the case in the case of uh, Rise of Skywalker and, and um, I, I can't 
I can't think of many times where just fucking get it out there now has ever really felt valid apart from the thief and the cobbler. (laughs) (laughs) Just give it here, Richard, for the love of God! And even that, they ruined. (laughs) (laughs) And that had a 57-year development cycle. There's a validity there. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, but you had and, and six I years think, after Frozen to make a follow-up that so many people were going to take to heart and really care about. And this mediocrity is what slid out of Disney. It just mm-hmm. felt like, could this not just have been one of those many, many Frozen TV specials? You know, there's, there's we've mm-hmm. been in Arendelle and they've had little sing-songs and fun times and things in the years between. There was a 24-minute Olaf adventure that they put out before i think it was incredibles 2 and it might have been incredible yeah and 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 they put it out and people were leaving the theater and going to the box office and saying sorry oh did we wanted to see incredibles 2 we seem to be seeing some kind of not especially fantastic sequel to frozen (laughs) and there's no excuse this time because it was a not especially fantastic sequel to frozen which lasted an hour and a half yeah, and I, I think to your point, like a lot of this, I think is exemplified in like Anna and Kristoff. They just kind of don't like. We had to give them something to do, so let's arbitrarily make it so that like they're having problems with their relationship. But mm. what are the problems in their relationship? What like what problems are they actually having? Like what's going on that's that's wrong or tearing them apart? I can tell you, they deleted it. Um... Christoph okay. was not happy living in Arendelle. And he tells uh, Anna, and she says, well, then we need to break up. And then they break up. But people didn't like oh. that because um, it seemed like Anna was being a little bit too knee-jerk, and she never asked him, oh why are you not having all that much fun? Or it was just like, love me, love my Arendelle. But, yeah, that... but, but taking it out then makes it seem like there's nothing wrong, and they're creating yeah. problems out of nowhere. But that's the thing. If they then follow up and go, you know what, Arendelle, it's uh, kind of built on colonialism. Again, they've got this... Like they, they kind of dallied with it a little bit in uh, Thor Ragnarok, which is more bold with it, but they still didn't follow mm. up on it in, in terms of, yeah, no, they, these, th- th- this was terrible and these people suffered as a result. Yeah. I mean, I got to admit, the, the song that Kristoff does is, it's it's funny in oh, that yeah, like kind of love, like 80s love ballad kind of way, but also it feels a bit like, well, Deadpool did it, so now we have to have a parody of that Chicago song too. Yeah, did it just with a Chicago song, but in a, in a place where he'd been stabbed <laughs> in the head. But, right. um, <laughs> I don't know. It, I, I liked that sequence, but everything about this film feels yeah, it was, fluffy. It was it was cute. It was funny, but yeah. it also felt very much like, uh, where is this coming from? Yeah. The it the film when you watch it in retrospect actually had a much lower stakes than as it turned out, and the fact Elsa was able to save the day with no repercussions and with no sacrifice, uh, it made made the whole thing so much lighter and thus kind of unworthy of following up on such a film that had such an impact. Instead of feeling like something that's been tightly woven, um, which some of Disney's best work absolutely feels, yeah. it's something that's got snipped threads and um, lost patterns here, there and everywhere and what you end up with is a rug that falls apart the minute you try to stand on it. Yeah. The, I mean, also, 
I've heard some uh, some folks didn't really like uh, the fourth film, but uh, against all odds, Toy Stories 2, 3, and 4, at least for me, I really enjoyed what they were actually saying and how the, the perspective they were giving on being a toy and how that kind of paralleled certain forms of existence. It doesn't work if you start thinking about how these are immortal creatures made of plastic, somehow imbued with a spirit that lives on no matter how much damage is incurred. Where do their spirits go when they get thrown on a landfill Don't and rocked? think about Let's that. Let's not think Let's about not, that. Let's not, no. Um, <laughs> well, hang on. Have you ever heard of the ship of Theseus? <laughs> Yes, we've heard of the ship of Theseus. He's called Asterius. Would we stop? Can we stop talking nice. about this? Nice. Yes. I'm high-fiving you, Maya. <laughs> I mean, like... <laughs> okay, but... It's a giant bull of Minos. <laughs> but here's the thing. Pixar, uh, in almost all cases, I think, uh, excepting Incredibles 2, which felt like a rehash of the original, um, and a couple of others, tend to really focus on what are we doing with this one? And what are we saying if they've, like, the, most of their sequels are actually their weaker films, Toy Story being the exception. Um, usually their sequels are sort of more motivated by, well, these are very popular films, they made a lot of money, and we do like money. Um, but <laughs> but for some reason, like, the, the Toy Story, again, again, for me, all three Toy Story sequels just had that tightness about... What are we actually saying here? What are we moving forwards with? We will cover Toy Story 4, and I'll make my case for that one, but we've, we've done two and three in the, uh, in the, the distant past, um, nearly ten, well, more than 10 years ago now, uh, with yeah. Dan Floyd himself. And it feels like if you were going to do Frozen 2 at all, you absolutely needed to make it about something very substantial and have it have that weight, have that impact. Mm. Because yeah, even if that impact wasn't pleasing to everyone, because you can't please everyone, if it's if you just push forward with that, that, like this means something to these characters, then it will be at least worthwhile following up this original. Maya, sorry, carry on. Yeah, it it needed a more specific and and focused purpose, I think. And to your point, the Toy Story sequels, uh, I think pretty much all of them, like maybe the second one to a lesser extent, but they do all seem to have a very specific and very different purpose to them. Mm. And I think that's what makes them really work and why they've worked multiple times in the way that they have, not to mention the fact that the animation has, you know, progressively just gotten better and better and better to the point where like in the first two minutes of watching Toy Story 4, I went, well, this film has already won the Academy already. It's already <laughs> won the Oscar. I don't know what any other animation studio is even trying to do. Like, it has already won just by them showing how absolutely flawlessly they could recreate a, a torrential downpour of rain. Yeah. Just in that little bit, I was like, given the Oscar already, like, what are we even doing here? I don't even need to see the rest of the movie. <laughs> but Frozen's a really big deal. Remember when we were in Disney World back in the before times when you could go to Disney World without oh, fear? Oh, in the before four. <laughs> At the moment, by the way, they're advising people not to scream on their rides. Because <laughs> <laughs> they'll blow what? dangerous fumes back into the faces of other people screaming. So just, like, oh going God. around on the runaway mine train, calm as Hindu cows. Totally silent? Like, what? 
Space Mountain, eerily silent as it rumbles around. How are you going to get your kids not to laugh on the thrill rides? Like, just to even just laugh. No laughing. I don't. There will be no laughing. Even if it was possible. You know, I read that. And this is, to be fair, this is not something that they have said. This is something that they are apparently being advised on at the moment. Uh That it would be, it's a dangerous environment if people are on the ride screaming in each other's faces, laughing hysterically in each other's faces. I don't know throwing up all over the place because how do you stop yeah, yourself that doing that if it's going to happen yeah. um, but honestly I, it's less if you go to Disney they're going to fine you if you scream on a ride and more if you can't scream or laugh What's why are you going point? to a Disney theme park uh, yeah yeah well that's a that is a huge rabbit hole and we are late for a very a, important yeah. day yeah the parks are a whole different can of worms now that uh, you know COVID is still going on and we're, we're never, uh, seemingly never going to re- return to the before four. So I, d- I don't know what else to say about The best that. we Disney, can hope for is the aftertimes. I, I would love the aftertimes to hurry up and freaking get here. Like, <laughs> that would be, that would be lovely to be able to like safely go back to a movie theater again. That would be lovely. All yeah. that stuff. Yeah, it would. But um, what I was uh, uh, beginning to say there... Um, Frozen's a big deal. When we were in the parks, there was so much uh, of uh, Disney's um, 2D hand-animated renaissance. Like that, that those movies are huge, and everybody loves them. And it it made it difficult uh, to, to 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 sort of look at it and go, okay, so you got them Finding Nemo, Toy Story, and Cars are sort of all over the parks, mm-hmm. and and you're persisting with. No hand-drawn animation. So it, it was annoying. But Frozen, all the kids love it. They get comfort from Elsa and Anna because you've got a sister relationship there. And, and you know, a lot of girls have sisters. A lot of, lot of brothers have brothers. And there's that kind of sibling feel going on. Especially, like, that's the other thing. Especially having a sister who's not quite the standard. Like, they could really do something with that. Um, mm. But... That means that this is just Frozen 2, and there'll be a Frozen 3, and a Frozen 4, and a Frozen 5, and many Frozen shorts in between. This is a whole, like, D&D elemental world-building thing going on here. And the foundations they've set up for the expansion are very weak. That is Mm. a problem. Because this is a thing with a huge tale. This is a thing with a legacy. And they have not done it in a way that lends strength to future installments that is the unfortunate after effects the fallout of frozen 2 school of movies is funded by patreon we get to keep going every week because you folks support us thank you to all of you and our 15 dollars and those in the top tier get credit every episode so thank you to aaron lecluse abel savard Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G. Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Sarah Montgomery, 
Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And if you're on our Patreon at the $5 level, that gives you access to the bonus feed with hundreds of extra podcasts that you can't get anywhere else. Recently, we've talked about two versions of Freaky Friday, an absurd Michael Caine pirate movie, a spectacularly cheap Ninja James Bond, an unfilmed Justice League script that was going to be directed by George, Mad Max, and Happy Feet Miller, and our Marvel Cinematic Universe rewatch is now up to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. We like giving you goodies. I watched a great video by The Take on queer coding that covered everything dating back to the Hayes Code and how it was literally illegal to proclaim that characters were gay in cinema. So you got gay-coded villains like Peter Lorre in The Maltese Falcon that were never directly named as such. This video also included a lot of how Disney, over the years, have slalomed between making their villains manifestly gay in a way that the gay community unexpectedly embraced many of them. Some more insultingly depicted than others. Uh, Ratcliffe in Pocahontas not only is a flamboyant gay stereotype and quite a dislikable character, but he's also responsible, I believe, solely for colonialism? Because he wants gold of Pizarro. Disney's issue these days, however, is what can be accurately described as queer baiting. This is, in its coldest, most technical term, a marketing technique for fiction and entertainment in which creators hint at, but then do not actually depict, same-sex romance or other LGBTQIA representation. And it's everything we've been talking about in the Frozen 2 section of this particular episode. The creators want to say that these characters are queer, but the studio are afraid of losing money. One of our community members on the Discord, Pluto Burns, made a very succinct point about this in particular. Disney is genuinely stuck. The lucrative gay market is getting fed up with morsels, which is what these are, and the homophobe market spent the last five years getting ready to burn anything that displeases them to the ground. Remember when we praised them for their baby steps? Well, they've taken a dozen little, increasingly smaller baby steps up to this wall of intolerance, and now they have their nose jammed up against it. As this episode goes out, we are currently reeling from some truly repulsive legislation in America that targets trans kids in particular in the name of morality, whilst at the same time, girls who defend themselves from predatory cishet males are themselves ostracized. It's never been about protecting women. It's always been about controlling women and giving everyone someone to target. Something has to give. And at the moment, fans of queer-baited characters are having to content themselves with the death of the author and fanfic. These beloved characters are on the spectrum wheel going beyond the standard because we've had all the hints and because we have great imaginations and we can write. Now, if you want to read an interdimensional LGBTQIA romance novel, may I humbly put forward Stonespring Maidens. 
a book that I planned and carefully, lovingly wrote over several years and had sensitivity tested by folks from a variety of different walks of life and persuasions for gay, trans, disability and racial representation. And I'm very proud of it. Stone Spring Maidens is available in paperback form on Amazon. And if you can find the New Century Multiverse podcast feed and subscribe to that, the first episode of the audio drama is going to be launched in the next few weeks, the first Thursday in May. That is the sixth of the month. And here is a taste of the intro. A long time ago, in a lost kingdom, where beneath the shadows men lived as beasts, there dwelled a young woman who dreamed of cogs and springs, of cares and levers. She would often fall asleep while working, and this was when these dreams would carry her to new ideas. Her inner mind was of such fire and brilliance that when she awoke, she birthed technology, the like of which had never been seen in her world. She was the daughter of two great leaders, who inspired many allies and made many enemies. They sent her on a quest with a group of brave travelers, journeying across the land in her ingeniously crafted carriage, to close the magical gate that led to a terrible place through which great harm and trouble was spilling. Whilst she was away, her mother and father fell at the hands of their enemies. The young woman heard of this news and was deeply saddened. She drifted into a lasting slumber as her companions gathered around, deeply concerned that there would be no return from this one. But inside her mind, the maiden was healing herself awaiting the day when she might return to them with the strength to proceed. One evening, to their relief, she awoke to the world of matter. They continued on their quest, and after much hardship and many challenges, the magical gate was shut and the danger closed away. But to achieve something so significant was not possible without sacrifice, and on their journey back, the travelers fell into a fearful trap. But a white knight had been sent to rescue them. Evil people had destroyed her carriage. The white knight cut off her legs in the ferocity of his wrath. Nonetheless, the young woman survived. She returned home, uncertain of what remained in her life. The world was darker and more frightening. She could not walk or run or even stand. Sadness and anger threatened to overcome her each time she thought of this monstrous armored demon. But in her mind, she dreamed of ways she could become free once more. And she would have her revenge. That's it on these two. We will be back with Raya next week. <laughs> Complacency appears to be Disney's biggest enemy at this point beyond COVID. 
they've they've made it. They've become masters of their own destiny. They own a full third of the world, <laughs> yeah. it would appear. And yeah, and and it's funny that, you know, recently we've had examples of where, oh, this seems like it's going in kind of a, a cool and different direction. You have examples like WandaVision and The Mandalorian, you know, that now that two seasons of that have been released. Mm. There are other facets of Disney that are kind of, I think, going in these different directions. But like the kind of flagship Disney stuff that we all think of, which is the, you know, the castle and the princesses and their animation division. It seems like it's kind of going back into that lull, like you keep mentioning with your your chicken littles and, you know, that weird time in like the 70s and early 80s. Mm. We may be coming back around on the the bottom side of that cycle again. So, I mean, I feel like I'm a little presumptuous going, hey, Raya's fantastic. Maybe we've got out of the slump already. And... Maybe oh, we have. Let's be optimistic in that regard and hope that the follow-up to Raya is uh, of, of a similarly consistent high quality. But, uh, yeah, we will we'll be back next week with Daniel Floyd in tow, uh, back on track, talking about Disney actually doing well. Um, Maya, you have been fan-fucking-tastic to have on. Really. Thank you, guys. I've been wanting to talk about this fucking Ralph movie for years <laughs> now. Oh, yeah. Finally, finally been able to get it off my chest because it, the one of the things that was, like, so baffling to me was this is, so, like, it, it was super upsetting to me, and I didn't understand why more people weren't, and I thought I was the odd one out, but looking back on it, I'm like, no. No, it's worse. Uh, it's worse than I remembered. And these issues have not gone away. They're coming back in some weird ways, too. So I, I can't I, I had to get it off my chest, but I'm glad I'm not alone in, in seeing some of the very troubling things that are in it. So um, what stuff have you been part of recently that folks can check out? I can vaguely hint at some stuff. Um, I, I mentioned Doom Patrol several times in the past, so mm. you can look forward to season three coming out um, probably closer towards the end of the year. But I've already filmed scenes for, for season three of Doom Patrol, so be on the lookout for that. Um, I think I just kind of want to reiterate some of the things I mentioned before. Uh, I, the Dan Olson video that you mentioned, Alex, is a, a great thing to look at. Oh, yeah. Please take a look at the Jimquisition for much better researched videos on video game monetization, loot boxes, and microtransactions and that sort of thing. They've done countless videos on it. But the one that I mentioned, uh, which, again, uh, the title of is the addictive cost of predatory video game monetization. I think that's one of the most to the point is showing the real world uh, mm. consequences of these things. So that's one that I would recommend above all of them, but they're all great. And if you want to look up uh, Folding Ideas video on the weird, again, it's a rabbit hole of, of creepy, algorithmically generated, disturbing kids videos, uh, then it's called Weird Kids Videos and Gaming the Algorithm. And that is uh, 14 minutes that uh, you will, will chill you to your bones, but you'll come out wiser mm. and more savvy. And if you've got kids, you'll be like, right, I now know what to make sure I look out for. Yes. <sighs> we actually really like a lot of the work that has been done by Disney in the past and some of the other franchises that have been discussed on, on your podcast as well. And 
we want to see them do well. We want to see them make good work, like genuinely good, uh, substantial work. And when they don't, it is especially disappointing. So what you're saying, Maya, is we're not mad. We're We're just just disappointed. disappointed. (laughs) Oh, no. Well... I I, oh, I promised myself that I would never start sounding like my mother, and yet here we are. <laughs> it's wrong that we feel like Disney's parents at this point. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, grumpy. we don't feel oh this God. about our kids. Our, the, the, our kids of this generation are going to be fine. It's the corporations churning out the media. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we'll be back next week uh, with uh, Disney doing something right. And uh, until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. Again, you're gone. Off on a different path than mine. I'm left behind, wondering if I should follow. You had to go. And of course, it's always fine. I probably could catch up with you tomorrow. Is this what it feels like to be growing apart? When did I become the one who's always chasing your heart? Now I turn around and find I am lost in the woods. North is south, right is left. When you're gone, I'm the one who sees you home. Wondering if you still can